everybody. Welcome to another Whiskey Web and Whatnot with myself, Robbie Wagner, my co-host, as always, Charles W. Carpenter III, and our guest today, Tom Preston Werner. Hey, how's it going? I'm great. How are you? Doing well, doing well. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for taking the time to join us and drink some whiskey, maybe talk about things. Yeah. Anytime I have an excuse to drink a new whiskey, I'm in. Nice. Has anyone tried this one before? I have not. Actually, a friend of mine, Dom, who is on the Redwood JS core team, knew that I liked whiskey and got this for me. So I have not read about it or tasted it or anything. I have a completely fresh mind about it. I won't be polluted by anything anyone else has said about it. <laughs> All right. Perfect. Yeah, that's the way we like to approach them as best we're able. A lot of times we tend to be in the um, bourbon and rye area of whiskeys. We did one Japanese whiskey, actually. And so this will be our first scotch. Really? Your first show. scotch? What? Is, what? what? <laughs> that's ridiculous. <laughs> I love scotch. Well, I was born and raised in Kentucky, so ah. I have a proclivity towards that side of things. But uh, still, I'm... Always up for trying something new and uh, keeping it interesting no matter where it goes. But Robbie, you might want to tell them about how we rate them to our very clever scale. Yeah, so we, um, our mascot is like an octopus thing, um, you know, similar to a GitHub octopus kind of, but like without the cat. Sweet. But um, so we, our rating system is out of tentacles. So it's one tentacles is like the worst thing you've ever had. And eight is like nothing is better than that. Okay. Got it. One through eight. Got this. I can never pronounce this right. Lagavulin. Lagavulin. It's Lagavulin. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I don't eight know what I want to say. The like eight years with which it was. Lag, lag of, I don't know. Lagavulin. All right. <laughs> All right. Cool. So yes, uh, in my, I was saying earlier to Robbie, I didn't bring a nice glass. So I have this very tall water glass that's sad. to utilize from the co-working space. I know the Glencarn you have, that's the right way to do it. It's the only the, glass I'll drink. Norland. We didn't really say what this was other than me trying to pronounce it, but it's a Lagavulin uh, eight year. It's a hundred percent malted barley. Um, It's a scotch. So of course it is, but um, it's a mash bill. It's exceptionally fine. According to the labels, Uh, the always thing I'm always interested in is because many other whiskeys outside of bourbon can be aged in used uh, barrels. So sometimes you'll get a scotch that's aged in bourbon barrels and get that kind of twist on the flavor. But I did not research to see if this was one of them. Yeah, well, I would be extremely surprised if it wasn't. And most scotches aged in, you know, they have to, I think they they generally, I think they might even have to be aged in X, often X bourbon casks. Well, I'm definitely getting the peat yep. in the smell. Getting it from about a foot away. <laughs> nice. Yeah. That's the good part. So Robbie and I were in Nashville last week, company retreat. And as part of that, we went to the Greenbrier Distillery and they do Tennessee whiskey. And it was the first time in all the tastings that I've been to that they talked about how to prepare your palate, which is what I was just trying to do, which is just chew it in your mouth for a few seconds to let it like the salivation come up. And then you have a coating. So then on your next taste, apparently you'll be able to like draw different notes and you get less of the burn. That's what I tend to do. I don't know if you've ever heard that. Get it in the yeah. mouth and, and chew it a little bit. So I actually went on a trip to Isla, Scotland, a number of years ago with some friends and have been to the Lagavulin distillery and the others on Isla. 
what what is really special about that is you get to taste a lot of whiskeys in rapid succession and you can really start telling the difference between them. Because if you only have a scotch like once a month or something, you're like, yep, tastes like scotch. But if you have yeah. one from each of the different distilleries or say 20 from one distillery in rapid succession, then you can start saying, oh, like I, 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 can, I can taste the caramel in this one or I can taste the, you know, the, the type of barrel that this one was aged in. The same is true of wine or really anything, I think. But that's the, that's, I think, is the secret. Like when you drink wine, it's great. It's always great to have two wines and then you can taste them against each other and say, oh, this is how they're different. And, and so absolutely. Yeah. That's, so I think they talked about that when we were on that trip. It's like get in your mouth, give it a few kind of chews around. And that really gets you the, that sense. So nice. Interesting things. Again, like kind of coming back to where we've not approached scotches in this show. I mean, I've had some over my life, but uh, I'm getting some like lemongrass. Yeah, this one's really kind of kind of fresh, kind of grassy a little bit. That might be the same, that same kind of flavor note you're getting. Yeah, it's almost not like, not like lemon juice, but more of like lemon rind, a little bitter lemony kind of mix. Yeah, it's different than like a lot of the Laphroaigs that I really love are, my, my favorite tasting note is Band-Aids. <laughs> You get that one a lot with Laphroaig's. <laughs> Tastes like Band-Aids, which I think is so Interesting. disgusting and also accurate. <laughs> so relating the smell of Band-Aids to, to the taste of what you're experiencing. I find that so funny in general when people are trying to describe their own like personal taste, like what I'm experiencing. Let me find this word that maybe you can connect to. Unrelated, but actually related. It was like a documentary some years ago. I don't know if you ever saw that, but it was a group of guys who were studying together to become master sommeliers. Mm -hmm. And they would do these tasting parties and, and uh, be able to narrow things down to like a region, uh, which bank of the river, right. uh, this particular area. And they would come up with like strange descriptive terms like that. My favorite one was uh, smells like a freshly opened tennis ball yeah. canister of tennis yeah, balls. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> Right. And you're like, yeah, <laughs> OK, I don't know if I want to drink that, but I appreciate the descriptor. It's kind a of very... a weird smell to get out of a wine. No, but it's I mean, it, it is great because it's so subjective. Anything you say is correct, because how could it mm -hmm. how could it possibly not be? Like, if that's what you're experiencing, right. like, what am I to tell you that that's not what you're experiencing? Yeah. And if you say it, then I experience that. The power of suggestion is real. Right. It's very Im impressionable. And what I loved about being in Scotland, too, is the ceremony of it or just where you are and the experience of being there and it being this special event, this special thing automatically makes it taste a thousand times better. And then you go back, you're like, wow, yeah. that was the best scotch I've ever had. You buy a bottle of it. You go back home. You're in your living room. Your lights are on. You know, you pour yourself a glass and you're like, this is not as good as I remember it was because, <laughs> you know, the setup is so different. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's the win in Rome and tying that together. You're so excited about it regardless. There was a great episode of Penn and Teller's Bullshit. Have you ever seen that program? This is from more than a decade ago. This is like 15, 20 years ago. They, they made this show, but it's Penn and Teller, the magicians. And they basically go around debunking stuff. So it was kind of like Mythbusters. One of them that they did was this, this effect of the expectation of something. So they were at a restaurant. They had people that would come in and they would pour them a special glass of water and they would say like, you know, we're having this water tasting and like this water is from 
you know, some place in France, you know, on the shores of this, of, you know, of the coast. And so you can kind of taste the saltiness of it. And there was another water that was, you know, from, I don't know, Alaska or something. Right. And so you can taste the minerals of the mountains. And so people would have these waters and they would taste them and they would be like, oh yeah, like, I think I can really think I'm getting that kind of minerality. Like, it's really interesting. Like I haven't experienced that before. So they had this like water tasting and then they had this uh, dessert tasting and it was like a mousse kind of a thing. They'd bring it out and they'd be like, oh, this is a special fancy mousse prepared with, you know, liquid nitrogen and all this, all this gastro- gastronomical kind of stuff. And people would be like, mm, wow, this is, I'm getting like, like lemony scents from this. Right. And then they cut to where they're preparing this. And it's a, it's like a guy with a garden hose and he's just water right out of the <laughs> garden hose into these glasses. And then the dessert is cool whip. And it's <laughs> oh like, it's, it's all in the setup. It's all in the story. And it, yeah. it is so, it's such an impactful part of food. I, I, and I love that because it means that you can take something ordinary and make it extraordinary by just creating the right environment. Mm. Definitely. Yeah. The power of suggestion, ambiance being something, yeah, experience in general. And hey, Cool Whip's not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I don't drink a ton of scotch, so I'm not getting really many notes other than lots of peat and smoke <laughs> and, and everything. Yeah, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not like super duper impressed. I mean, I love all scotch, so I'm, you know, I'm impressed anytime I have a scotch. And I actually haven't had much scotch recently because I don't, I don't mm. ever drink by myself because it's not any fun. And there's really been a lot of being by yourself over the last year and a half. So <laughs> my opportunities yeah. to drink scotch have been diminished during COVID. I have a suggestion here to fix that and start a podcast where in the beginning you drink a whiskey. <laughs> that's genius. Helps a lot. That's genius. Yeah. That's, that's been our best idea so and far. Whiskey becomes a business expense. So, oh, I like, hey, now we're talking. <laughs> now you just need to have a reason to expense some private jet flights. And they're entering scotch on those private jet flights. And then you'll really be in business. In-person podcast. This is not nearly, yeah. this is not nearly as complex as a lot of the scotches that I've had. I think it's still nice. This is more of, this is like an easy drinking scotch. It's not too hot. It's not too challenging, which can be nice, right? Like you don't always want to be challenged. I'd agree with that. I, for me personally, because I don't drink a lot of scotch, like the Pete Monster kind of, it, it's sort of like the IPA thing for me. Like I, I don't know. Triple IPA, too much. Peat Monster, too much of that. This gets me some of that flavor without bowling me over, just because I don't have the palate that I have it that often. So it's, it's easy drinking in that way. And I'm getting those notes. And I like the citrus, light citrus kind of like follow up with it. Not a lot of burn. Whereas, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard this term, but growing up, if you got that burn, they would call it the Kentucky Hug. This would be a Scottish hug, I guess, but not too much hug. <laughs> That's great. And I'm going to, so I'm going to say in that sense of things without it being like, oh, wow, this is amazing, but it, I can enjoy it. I'm getting some diversity for me. I'm going to give it five tentacles. Yeah. I think, I don't know. I've only maybe had say like eight scotches total in my life. So I would say <laughs> this is one of the better ones. I've had some that I really didn't like. Um, so I would, I would say maybe six tentacles. It's all in context. And it really is. I have to think about the breadth of scotches that I've had because I've had hundreds. And I used to drink Johnny Walker Black. This was my, this is my drink. So I used to drink just beer. It was like the only thing that I would drink was beer. That's it. I wouldn't drink mixed drinks. I wouldn't drink wine. 
this was this was like early GitHub days. We'd go out to the bars and we'd drink for like eight hours sometimes and talk <laughs> about technology and stuff. But like, if you drink beer for eight hours, like you're really full. Like it's a lot of yeah. it's a lot of liquid mm-hmm. over you know over a period of time. And so I was like, I need to find a drink that is more that is denser, so I can drink less of it, and it still be you know n- normal and, and not weird. So. I switched to Johnny Walker Black on the rocks, which one of my friends, Blake, would always call Bo Rocks. So we called it Bo Rocks. <laughs> and so I'd get Bo Rocks, Johnny Walker Black on the rocks. And it was great. And I was like, this is, you know, this is, this is not too, this is like, this is nice. It's whiskey. Whiskey's, you know, great. Everyone likes whiskey, you know, and this was sort of in the early days of whiskey renaissance, maybe before whiskey renaissance even really happened. And, and that was great. It solved the problem that I had. But then I started to kind of like, it was kind of, it'd get kind of watery, like the ice melts and, and now you're drinking watered down whiskey and it's not super high quality whiskey. So then I started branching out and I was like, well, what, what other scotches do you have? And I'd get other ones on the rocks, but like some of these, then you're like, you don't want to put these on ice, not big cubes of ice in a tumbler glass. Like that's, that's weird. You're, you're spoiling them in these, you know, the ones at the bars of which there are generally not many. Right. Like this is the problem with scotch is you go to a regular dive bar in San Francisco or something, they've got three scotches, right? They might, if you're lucky, they've got a Laphroaig 10 or something, right? And you're like, yes, score. But those are really, those start to get really challenging. Like you go order a Laphroaig and you're like, bam, like everybody in the room is like, oh, geez, someone just ordered a scotch. Like you can smell it for 20 feet (laughs) when someone gets a pour of Laphroaig going, right? But then, but then I got into that and then I was like, wow, this is... This is amazing. And then I started wanting to find like the crazy scotches. So then we get into, you know, trying to chase the peat monster as it were, right? Peat monster mm-hmm. itself. But that one, that one is not, that's just like a mass marketing kind of a gimmick. The peatiest scotch in the world is the Octomore that Buna Harvin makes. And, and it gets, it's like, you know, I don't know what the peat level this one is, but it's probably 50 times as much peat as this. It's like, ridiculous wow. amounts of peat, like almost undrinkable amounts of peat. And they do it just because they can. They're not doing it because it's actually good. It's not. Like it's <laughs> it's not <laughs> you don't want to drink <laughs> it's it. It's a one tentacle? You it's well, it's but it's all in the experience, right? Like the only time you drink it is when you get a bunch of buddies around and you're like, hey, let's all drink the Octomore, right? And everyone's like, oh geez, it's the peatiest scotch on the planet. Right. And then the experience makes it interesting. Even though it's not good by the standard of like I want to drink an, an excellent scotch that is going to, to really satisfy my, my needs from a peat perspective because it's too much. It's overpowering, but it's in the experience. And so from that perspective, you get out this tall, you know, opaque black bottle of scotch and, and you know, everyone gets a, a dram of it and, and it's a good time. But it makes it kind of hard to, to boil down to a number. But I'd say I've had some really good scotches. And I've had a lot of normal scotches. So I don't know, maybe four, four tentacles. Like this is obviously high quality scotch. It's good, but it's not for me personally. I like a scotch with some, with really a lot of character, like a lot, a lot of complexity. Yeah. Yeah. And I've had a lot of those. And so this is nice. I will drink this scotch any day of the week, but I'm going to go with, I'm going to go by halfway. Yeah. I think that's perfect from your perspective. You're saying like, this isn't, this would be a sipper. As I would say, like, yeah, yeah, this is a regular shipper I might keep around. It's great. It's not like an amazing experience that I might like save for more special occasions or even something that is like, oh, I'm craving a little more. 
This is just, yeah, I'm not afraid to like, it's a Wednesday. I've got friends over. I won't, let's yeah, have a it, couple of these. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's exactly how I would use this scotch. Got a bunch of people over. You just had a meal or something. You're, you're drinking after the meal and it's like bust out the Lagavulin 8 and everybody gets a big pour and it's easy drinking and you're having fun. And it's not about challenging yourself or thinking that you're super fancy because you got some bottle of scotch or whatever. It's just like a nice time. No tuxedo required. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we've covered the base of the whiskey, although feel free to continue sipping away as we discuss more technical matters. All right. Following the format. Yes. So obviously the hot topic or the top of mind for you, given your t-shirt today is uh, talking about Redwood JS. Very interesting. We've got lots of, a lot of questions around that, like what's going on in the space right now and uh, with like things like Next.js and the compare and contrast there. Um, I actually listened to the React podcast that you did last year discussing that. And I thought it was really interesting. You were talking about full stack Meteor and then talking about your time with Rails and taking a lot of the paradigms out of Rails into this. And it just a lot of the things you were saying made me think about Ember as well, um, taking a lot from Rails and uh, Ember data and active record relations and the configuration ideology. So it's kind of one of the things is well, ShipShape was started as um, a Rails consultancy. An Ember consultancy. So just maybe like starting with the, not, <laughs> sorry, yeah, an Ember consultancy. I swear I only had two sips of scotch. <laughs> but like maybe that's a great place to start and get some feedback and, and thoughts around uh, what you think about Ember.js just as a framework with some of those similar ideologies. Well, I will say that I've never used Ember.js and I know almost nothing about it. Good start. Does that answer your question? <laughs> Perfect. It does. It absolutely does. Just like, oh, I when I was listening to that React podcast uh, and you were talking about deriving these things from Rails, I'm like, oh, this seems a lot like Ember. I wonder if he's going to bring up Ember. You did not. And that makes, yeah. makes a well, lot of so sense why I, he wouldn't. I went from Rails to, I guess, React-based front ends on top of Rails. So I never, I never kind of dabbled in that middle ground before. And I just have not had the time to really go and and extensively use kind of all of the the different JavaScript framework things. And this is this is maybe my pattern sometimes. I, I might be a bit more naive about some of the competition than you would expect because I half on purpose, but half just because I don't have a lot of time, go and do extensive kind of market comparisons because I do enough to know that the solutions that are out there aren't meeting the needs that I have. And then I want to just go build something. And in doing that, I don't want to be, I don't want to be corrupted by the ways that people have done things before. It sort of kills beginner's mind or like thinking about what the, the best possible solution or the, the solution from first principles might be. Because you start thinking about, oh, well, like that's obviously the way that you do that because that's what I've seen before. And so, so some of it's on purpose is to stay a bit naive of, the, of how everyone else does it just so that your solutions really are as novel as they can be at the, at the risk of reinventing the wheel sometimes. But I think the risk of being boring and repetitive is way higher if you're spending a lot of time with the competitive things being like, oh, what do they, what do they do well? And now you're just mashing together a bunch of things that other people did well, which is, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world, but I find it more interesting to kind of come at things from first principles. So that's maybe why I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert at 
the competition, I would say. I'm aware of it enough to know that, to know a little bit. And I know Ember, well, I don't know Ember much at all, but I know that people really, a lot, some people are really excited about it and they really love how much care is taken in its evolution. And that is, maybe that is something that is, that has been interesting to me that it's like, how careful can you be about how a framework develops and how, how much attention can you give to upgrade processes and making sure that people really have a good time with that. I'm getting this right, right? Ember is famous for this. Yeah. It's uh, okay. stability without stagnation or whatever. So it's like right. really easy to upgrade. Usually sometimes they stumble off that path, but yeah, I mean, it, it's hard, right? In, a, in an ecosystem that evolves as quickly as JavaScript, how do you, how do you possibly stay relevant if you don't have some mechanism for evolving? The problem then is if you have these huge breaking changes and you're swapping out chunks of your framework constantly to stay up with whatever the state of the art is in the JavaScript world, people are going to grow tired of that. And so it is, it is a tricky thing to manage. And so we've spent a lot of time and attention in the Redwood world being very good and getting a lot of experience around the upgrade process. So if you go look at any Redwood release, you'll see extensive release notes with not only the, the list of what changed, what was added, and what the breaking changes are, but then a full write-up of exactly how you upgrade all of the changes that you need to make to your application. And now we started providing automatic code mods. So you just type like NPX something something into there, Redwood whatever for the code mod that you want to run and we'll attempt to automatically make those changes for you. And that's something that we'd really like to provide going forward so that we can make bigger changes that might affect dozens of files in your code, but make it really easy to do that upgrade because it allows us to unlock future innovations in Redwood itself. Because that's one thing that we're not going to do is we're not, we're not going to stop. We're not going to stop innovating. We're not going to stop trying new things, or bringing in better things that we've found. We can't, we would, we may as well give up now if that's the case. And so the only remedy to that is to be very good at helping people through the upgrade process. And we've been doing this, it's not even 1.0 yet, right? Like it's, we're 038. The next release will be the 1.0 release candidate, which I am extremely excited about because I said that we were going to have a 1.0 out by the end of last year. And it is now November of this year. And so I'm only a year only a year late. Well, it'd actually be 1.0 probably first quarter next year. Because we, you know, because we want to be careful. And a 1.0 means something, says the Semver guy who said that people should be that that things should be 1.0 <laughs> as soon as anyone else is using them. I, you know, I get it. It's hard. Versioning is hard. But I, I want the win, I want the 1.0 to be meaningful. I want it to be to really mean stability. And a framework is a huge project. Like the surface area of this thing is just monster. So when I wrote that about in for semantic versioning. It was really more about a, a smaller library that people are using, right? Something that's not, that doesn't have the surface area of a, of a web framework. Yeah, and a full stack one at that. So I think that, you know, people are committing a lot uh, in their applications to take on the entire thing. And so I can definitely understand the, the careful consideration in declaring like a full 1.0 there. Circling back to that that podcast I was referencing as you were talking about a, a bit about Meteor JS is kind of being a similar, not similar in any way other than they were full stack, but like it started to make me th uh, think about how in some ways Redwood kind of feels like if Ember.js and Meteor.js were to get together and kind of like take concepts and now like innovate something completely new out of it, it felt a lot like that to me. 
I'll take your word on that one. Yeah. I going to say, of <laughs> okay. course, there's yeah. nothing to compare it to because. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Because here it is. This is what I mean. But uh, where Meteor had like the right intentions and they were just too early. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's right fair. Now. And that, I mean, I think that is something that was challenging for, for Meteor because it, like they really did come out with amazing stuff and, but they had to invent so much from scratch that it was, it was like too much. It was too much newness. And this has always been a core philosophy of Redwood is that it's, we're not going to reinvent everything from scratch as much as I would enjoy doing that. It's too far for people to leap to, right? If you're writing a React GraphQL thing right now, if I come along and I'm like, hey, guess what? I have this amazing new thing and you have to learn everything from scratch. Everything is different. Like Svelte, for instance. And Svelte is also amazing, but it's had a long road. Like Svelte's been out for a long time. It is finally like really kind of achieving a lot of success in a bigger way. And I think a big part of that is because it's like this totally new thing. It's like, oh, you know React? Guess what? This is completely different. You're like, I don't have the time to go learn a new front-end framework right now. I'm sorry. I just don't. So a big part of Redwood was saying, what are the common tools that people are using? What are people trying to do? What is a common stack that people have that they just haven't integrated well? And selecting those common pieces and making the hard work be the integration, the polish, the magic, the joy that Rails really had, that Rails created for me and so many other people that felt really missing in the JavaScript world. But if you're writing JavaScript on the front end, It'd be really nice if you could write JavaScript on the back end too. And like, where is that framework? And it was nowhere. And so that's a lot where, that's really a lot of where Redwood comes out of and why it, I think for most people, isn't going to be much of a leap. It's like, oh, I know, I know these things. GraphQL, I know that. React, I know that. Prisma is now becoming much more common. So like on the back end for accessing the database, you're like, oh, I know Prisma. I've used that before. And those are kind of the big pieces. And, and then you go from there and you're like, I want to use these pieces anyway. If I have to glue them together myself, like it's going to take the rest of my life to get this done. Right. If you start with create react app, I mean, that's, that's not much. Yeah. You're doing everything on your own. You know, Redwood integrates all of that plus just for testing plus storybook. If you want to use it on the front end, we're actually dabbling with some things that may make it look a little bit more like active record. I won't say too much about that, but. <laughs> There's some, you know, this is, we'll always be searching for that maximum developer experience. Like how, how nice can you make it to write a web application framework, but still make it so it can scale to a large team of people. And you can have those separations of concern from the front end to the back end. And that's what Redwood is really about. And the way that we've started thinking about it more and more is that Redwood is the app framework for startups. And this helps differentiate it from say Next or Blitz or Remix or Bedrock or, you know, there's a lot of people that are working on this kind of full stack JavaScript framework concept. And with Redwood, we're really trying to say, we want to create something that you can build a startup with and all of the tools that you need are going to be there from a technology perspective and that you're going to want because you're going to want to do testing and you're going to want to do Storybook eventually. And you're going to want GraphQL because you're going to have a mobile client or you're going to have a command line client or whatever. And you're going to want that separation of client from the back end to give you that flexibility. And so, yeah, Redwood's a little bit more complex when you look at it from the beginning than some of these other things. Like you can look at Next and Next is also amazing. Like all of these things are amazing. But you look at Next and you're like, okay, like you can get, a, you can get some really cool stuff done really fast. But now you have to invent all of your own integrations and all of your own 
your own patterns organizationally. Like every, every next app ends up looking different. And something that we liked about Redwood is that it creates more standards kind of deeper into the framework. So someone that comes in that's new to the team that's done Redwood before can come in and say, oh, I, I know exactly how this is organized. I know exactly how we do testing. I know, I know that we use Storybook. I know all of these different things. All of these things are just, they're, they're more well-known. Like where do files go, right? Like this is a thing, you know, five years ago, it was like, I'm going to create a, a web app with React. And you're like, where do you put your files? It's like, I don't know. Everybody invents a new way to do it. And it's just, it seems a little ridiculous that these best practices weren't being nailed down. And so that's, so that's also a frustration with a lack of best practices or for, for any consensus at all, really, because React has no opinions about any of these things. And people call React right. a framework, but like, to me, it's not a framework. Oh, and they lump totally them in agree. with things like, with like Next. It's like, you know, React is, is versus Next in these sort of evaluations. And I'm like, what does that even mean? Like that's, yeah, that's, no. They're totally different things. Yeah, it comes down to how much pain do you like? Like, do you want the batteries included or do you just <laughs> like engineering complicated things? And, and a lot of what you've just said is stuff I've been saying for years. Like Ember has kind of similar ideals where it's like, why would you want to spend, you know, a month setting up Webpack when I could just like generate stuff right. and like right. run my app, you know? Um, well, I didn't, I didn't even mention Webpack, but yeah, that's, you know, that's been months of our lives just wrangling Webpack to do what we wanted to do. And this is not, this does not make any, like a good Webpack config file does not make, does not differentiate anyone's web application, right? Nobody has ever been like, hey, what's your web app? What's your Webpack config look like? Like, that's really important to me. Like, nobody cares. This is not work that we should, we as company builders, as app builders, product builders should be thinking about. It should be, what's my business logic? What's my user experience? Let's go. And that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, there's no... User value in uh, Webpack Flex is what you mean, <laughs> yeah, exactly. right? And then you just start to debate opinions of, oh, what's your state management of choice? And what uh, do you use a router? And like all these little bits and pieces that React would require from a Create React app to, to actually get your application going would become like lots of internal debate. What do you oh, prefer? Yeah. What's our developer experience utilizing ABC? So I can actually see a lot of like value even from like the business side for adoption. Like it's great for Redwood because, you know, people with Redwood experience, they know how to, to get in and do all these th all these things that are fairly well known. And even if they don't have that experience, right, I'm starting a business, I'm getting my product out and I know I can hire people with a skill set a yeah. lot easier than, you know, very specific nuances. So, yeah, I see that as being a big benefit, too. Yeah, that's a big part of it. Hiring is, it, it, people don't really think about it when it comes to language ecosystems or, you know, when we're just talking about what tools we like. But when you're building a business, it really matters. You're like, am I going to be able to find Haskell developers? Like that becomes mm -hmm. a really relevant choice when you go out to choose a technology or Erlang. I wrote a lot of Erlang in the GitHub days and Erlang is amazing. But guess what's really hard to do? Find Erlang developers. There just aren't <laughs> very many of them or there were not back then. Now there's, I think more Elixir developers, which is awesome, you know, the, and, and that's why the Erlang at GitHub eventually got written out and replaced with stuff that people did know, like C and other, and other things. Cause it's like, there's nobody, you know, there's nobody here that knows how to fix this thing. If it breaks, like that's a, that's a liability. If there's only two, yeah, the one or two factor people. is huge on that. Yep. Like it gets the job done really well. And let me tell you, Erlang for writing servers, there's nothing better than Erlang. Erlang is just the most amazing thing that you could possibly ever write 
a server, like a, like a real, like a web server or a, you know, some protocol server. And it is just remarkable how amazing that language is. And I'm talking like straight Erlang, old school telecom Erlang, <laughs> not this fancy yeah, right. Elixir stuff that <laughs> the kids use these days. No, Elixir's great. It's like, <laughs> it's like you, it, make, it makes Erlang more approachable. But this Erlang syntax is really special to me because the key to learning Erlang, I'm getting off on a tangent here. Fair enough. Tangent away. The, the key to learning Erlang is to just let the syntax flow over you and to accept it. And just be like, I will not resist this syntax. I will absorb it and immerse myself into it. And if you, if you do that, then you start to understand the syntax. And it's so different than an imperative syntax. But eventually you get it. And some of the patterns that it has are so remarkable that I really, I miss them a lot. Like the pattern matching that it could do. Most operations would return a tuple of like, okay, and then some payload or error, and then some error message. And then you could pattern match them on, on those with Erlang's pattern matching syntax, which you can go look up. And it, it, it just made it so easy to write these things. I just, I miss it. I miss it every day. <laughs> so after Redwood 1, I expect some <laughs> Erlang coming, perhaps Q2 next year. I would love to write Erlang again, but it's not super practical today. Not a lot of people writing Erlang, unless it's Elixir. I would love to go learn Elixir though. And Rust. Everyone's writing Rust these days. Rust is on fire. Everyone is writing Rust. Yeah, it is. Say so next 12, just switch to the SWC mm. compiler in Rust. Yeah, everything, so, everything, more all the JavaScript tooling is being rewritten in Rust because it's faster. We're all going to be writing Rust in 10 years instead of JavaScript. Mm, it's a possibility with uh, yeah, WebAssembly web assembly. and all of that. Yeah. I'm just wondering who's going to come out with the first Ruby web framework that compiles to WebAssembly. That's what I'm wondering. That is interesting. Yeah, uh, there's definitely still a, I think, a deep following for some people. It's just not uh, not what you read about on blogs lately. Yeah, it's not the hotness. Yes. We haven't had any Ruby. No, it's not the hotness. What is the hotness? Well, just every new. Well, Redwood. <laughs> Redwood's pretty hot right now. Um, we, that's why we were like, oh, we, oh, my gosh. Yeah, this looks really cool and interesting. We've been doing a lot of Next lately over this last two years. Next is on um, fire. It's really remarkable how quickly, you know, it, it, it was around for a bunch of years. And then like two years ago, it's just all of a sudden inflection point, it seems. I think people really started to like get serverless. And then it's just kind of a natural bridge from there. So Oh, wait, serverless. Oh, this is deployed serverless if you do it this way, especially if you do like the happy path on Vercel and right. how Netlify does it. And they've just kind of made that a lot easier. And then it's not just the server-side render framework. It's got all these other patterns around static, uh, static site generation, but like incremental static regeneration and all this like weird cache kind of things to, to configure and play with. And then you know, a, a bunch of things are already figured out for you. So now React's not so terrible with 50 different variations. It's got these things that they've already decided for you. So that bridge to Redwood, uh, our interest in Redwood was pretty natural of like, oh, you've decided a bunch of stuff for us. Well, maybe we can, we can kind of dig this and just get things done. I mean, at the end of the day, I just want to get things done. I know, me too. Right. But it turns out you got to write a whole framework first. <laughs> yeah, I think you're constantly straddling the line of like, you know, how much do you build in to which point it like gets too heavy and like big for your app. Right. So like yeah. that's people's biggest concerns with embers. Like this seems like one is pretty old. So like, oh, it's not the hotness. It's old. I don't care about it anymore. 
And then also it's big. So like a lot of times people use it for, you know, internal dashboards or something or like teams are really productive on it, but it's, you can't ship like a really fast app in it. So like, I guess that would be a, a good question about Redwood is like, how do you, you know, decide what gets in, what doesn't, and like, can it remain nimble or like, you know, what's your philosophy there? That's always top of mind, especially when you're doing client side rendering and you got to ship mountains of JavaScript down to the client for them to parse and execute just to get something drawn on the screen. And I think there are some really cool things that can happen with that. Like you can put that whole thing on a CDN and get it really close to the user, which deploying Redwood to Netlify, you can you can kind of get that for free. You get all of your assets delivered really close. Now you still got to ping back to wherever your business logic is running, but at least you can get your your client stuff delivered very quickly. But it's a big concern, you know, and some of these libraries that we ship with, the client ships with Apollo client still right now. We've been wondering whether we should swap that out for something that's a little more lightweight, but that thing's pretty hefty. And so we do have to be very careful about what ends up on the, in the website packages, because that all is getting shipped down to the user. And it is kind of freeing to work on the API side and be like, we can add as much as we want. It doesn't really matter, right? Like this is all server side, like the, you, you don't incur those costs. And so the way we decide, I think, is it's just like, what is the usefulness to caught to size ratio? And we don't want to be shipping down stuff that you're not using. So I really, I think a big part of the future of all of this stuff is going to be better tree shaking kinds of things where it's like, what percentage of the code that we ship to the client is actually run? Like you can look in the profiler and it's usually like 40% or something. It's like, that's a, that's like dozens of megabytes of code that you're never even touching. And, and I mean, JavaScript was not designed to be good at this operation of trying to prune out the stuff that you don't run. What if we could make it better? How long, or how long does it take us to make it better, to make it to where we can detect and remove chunks of code that, that aren't run? Cause that would be, that would be awesome. But at the same time, most people who are building stuff, their primary concern is not eking every last ounce of render speed out of their app. It's getting something built quickly that the users are going to take advantage of. And so I think that is, that's been the bulk of our focus so far. And so that's really, that's really where the bar is. Like, does this make it easier for people to write an app? If it does, let's add it and we'll figure out the performance. And so performance is admittedly not our number one focus right now. It's really developer experience and making it possible to get an app up and running and something that's going to scale into the size of a, of a business, of a startup, something that's going to be with you for a decade and that you're going to be happy with that decision. And that Redwood's going to grow with you as you take that journey. And we will improve the performance over time. We will do all the fancy things that everybody does to optimize, but it's a long road. It takes some time. And it's, I don't think people's number one requirement. The boss is not generally asking you to shave 10 milliseconds off of your first paint, right? It's like, is this shipped? Did you ship this feature? Yes or no? You're like, well, we want the answer to be yes. Fair enough. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, and like you said, it isn't 1.0 yet. That's right. So it's not even 1.0 yet. Make those considerations. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's geared towards a startup kind of business. Um, so is there a kind of application that you think it like performs best for or? It's the same stuff that you would use Rails for or Django or any of these more traditional systems. It's a, it's a, a web application interactive where users are doing stuff, performing actions. 
we're less so focused right now on content pre-rendering. We have a pre-render feature where you can select specific routes and say, hey, I want this route pre-rendered and we'll do that for you. But we don't have a lot of the other caching features right now. That's going to be post 1.0 stuff. So incremental static site generation kind of stuff like that the Next has. We'll get there. That's just going to be post 1.0. This is what we call Redwood at scale stuff. And it all looks like caching. It's all different flavors of caching. Like all of this stuff, pre-rendering is a form of caching, static site generation, incremental static site generation, stale while revalidate. All this stuff is are, are different flavors of caching. And so the way that we think about it from a Redwood perspective is what do people want to accomplish? What do they need to accomplish? So again, this goes back to first principles. It's like, well, we're not just going to add stale while revalidate just because like that's how Next does it or for sell. It's like, what do, what do users want to do from your perspective? It's like, you have a route, what do you want to do with it? Or you have a chunk of a page, what do you want to do with it? How do you want to cache that? And should we do the caching at the GraphQL layer? Because that's starting to be really useful to do. And there's startups that are helping you to do that. We might be able to do some of that for you, even without third-party startups helping you do it. What are all those points where you want to, to do caching? And how do we make that possible from what Redwood's perspective? Well, and it's hard, right? The two hardest things hard. everybody says. Yeah, caching and naming stuff. So that's right. Yeah, which which I guess is a good question. This this may have been covered on the site. I don't know. I didn't read it that closely. It, is there a reason behind the name? Oh, Redwood. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so it, so yes. I'll give you the I'll give you my marketing answer, <laughs> and then I'll give you the real answer. I like to be different sometimes than everyone else. Like I just get tired of everyone doing the same thing all the time. And so anytime anyone's doing the same thing, I start to want to go the other direction. So when everyone started reading Harry Potter, everyone loved Harry Potter. And I was like, I'm not going to read that. Everybody likes that. It must be terrible. I wanna, <laughs> I'm going to read other stuff. And then later on, I read them and they're amazing. And I was, that was stupid to not. But this is just a quirk of my personality is that if everybody's doing something, I really try to do something different. And so everything in the React world is technology-based and, you know, in their, in their branding and naming, it's all like atomic stuff, you know, React itself. And, and like all these, all these different things are very, you know, and I love, I, I wanted to be a physics person. I wanted to be like a theoretical physicist. So it's not that I don't like this imagery. I love it. It's great, but it, it feels overused. Everything's an electron or a proton or a neutron or God knows what, right? It's all this, it's all this stuff, right? It's all feels very undifferentiated. So I was like, I need, a, I need something that's the opposite. And what's the opposite of that? Something in nature. That would be cool. Like nobody, nobody names their projects after trees or plants or clouds or, well, clouds. I guess everybody names stuff after clouds. <laughs> that <one> doesn't <laughs> count. But then, so that I was just brainstorming a bunch of ideas. And then Redwood was one of them. And I went through my big list and I, I crossed off everything that already had a, a really popular NPM package named that or that that just, you know, I just went, I, I eventually narrowed it down to a couple and Redwood was one of them. And I just, I live in near the Redwoods up here in the Bay area. And I love to go visit the Redwoods. And, and I just, I love that imagery or that, that idea. And then I started thinking deeper about it and it was like, Redwoods start small and then they get really, really huge. And that would be cool. Like if, if your web, if your web framework could start with you when you're really small, but also scale to be super huge, like a Redwood tree, that would be really cool. Or redwoods have bark that makes them really fire resistant. So what if your web framework could, could help you avoid disasters and, and get through the hard stuff like redwoods do with their bark? Or there was a couple of, there's some in the readme. You can look at the readme and I list off four 
four things that, that are like, here's why it's named Redwood. But if you go deeper back in the history of the README, you'll actually look, you'll actually find that it used to be called Hammer, the Hammer framework. And this was because I spent a lot of time in Berlin in the past couple of years, and I was learning some German. And in German, the word Hammer, Hammer means awesome. It's like slang for, well, it's the word for hammer. It's the same word in German, just pronounced differently. And, but it's, it's slang for awesome. And I was like, Ooh, that, that'd be a cool name for a hammer for a framework. And then you could have like Thor's hammer could be the symbology. And I had just read Norse mythology by Neil Gaiman or listened to it. I recommend this. If you're, if you like Norse mythology at all, go listen to Neil Gaiman's Norse mythology book. It's sort of his adaptation of the Norse myths and he reads it and he has just the best voice ever. Just the greatest for this book. It's amazing. So I'd listen to that and I was like, super into Thor. And I was like, Thor's hammer. That would be awesome. But the reason, and then I had all these like four same reasons that it would be named that way. And it's like, oh, Mjolnir, Thor's hammer can be, he can shrink it. He can make it smaller, big on demand. And I was like, oh, this can be deployed on serverless. So it's exactly like Thor's hammer. So I had all these, all these clever reasons why it should be named <laughs> the hammer framework. But then one day I went on Hacker News. No, it was Hacker News. I was, I was reading, I was looking for mentions of of Hammer, because I was like, I wonder if anyone's written about the Hammer. This was, this was two years ago now, probably. And someone had written an article. And in this article, they referenced it as Hammer.js. But it turns out that Hammer.js is an existing, quite popular mobile application touch kind of a yep. thing. Hammer.js. Oh, yeah. And I, and I knew this. I knew this from before. I knew that was the case. And I was like, ah, but this is called the Hammer Framework. So clearly there's no conflict of interest there. Like, this is not, this is not <laughs> going to be a problem. But then I, someone was like, and Hammer.js is this new web framework. And I was like, oh, crap, this isn't going to work. Because you it. know what? When we released this thing, the very first comment on the very first Hacker News article about Hammer, about Hammer, the Hammer Framework, is going to be, you know that name's taken already, right? And I was <laughs> like, I have to rename it. I have to rename it right now. And so then, yeah. so that's where, that's why it got renamed to Redwood. So there you go. Hammer, Thor, all those things. Neil Gaiman, I love him. I've not done the audiobook thing with him, but I love when authors read their own books. Yeah. It feels like it just gives it a whole additional like nuance and they know the parts that they feel the most about and you kind of like glean all of that from it. I'm always impressed too, because it's not a trivial thing to read an, like to do audio book stuff. Like that's. I can only imagine how long that must take and how many times they have to, I mean, once you get good at it, I suppose you could get good at it, but I just, man, that's a slog, right? Like at, at mm. best case scenario, you're reading something for like 12, 15, 20 hours, man, mm -hmm. that is brutal. Yeah. And I mean, it seems kind of optional because so many books are not read by the author. Right. So I think that's right. you don't have why to, yeah, I you appreciate don't have to do that. that. I love that though. It's weird when you have a, a children's book, we have three kids. And there's this book called Dragons Love Tacos, which is one of the greatest children's books of all time. And you can get the audiobook version of this, but the way that the author reads it, I'm like, that's not how you read it. That's not how you read that book. Because <laughs> I read it differently. And you have, you're very opinionated about how you read a children's book. This is true. You should release your own version. I should. <laughs> that's competitive version. Uh, there's also the High Five one, the oh, same yeah. author, I believe. That one kind of needs the visuals though, right? Like that one feels because it's like it's it's supposed to be you're supposed to like high five the pages you know 
Yes. And they get very excited. I have two children and they get very excited about those parts. So my, my son's five and he's like winding up from the bed and just coming down <laughs> with his massive high five. Nice. That's and my daughter's cool. only two. So she just sort of follows him up like, oh, we do this now. OK, right now we hit the book. <laughs> <laughs> you're training your, your kids to that. If your two year old is going to be like smacking random books and be like, I don't know. We just smack the book every once in a while. That's what we do. For a two-year-old girl, she's very aggressive, so very interesting. <laughs> Maybe it stems from this particular book. Hard to say. Now you've drawn those conclusions for me, though. This is now a children's book review podcast. This would be the whatnot section. Yeah. It's ah, usually just it devolves into whatever. <laughs> yes. yeah. So we've started to go from there, and then we go into whatnot, and we'll talk about, I don't know, interests or what we did. I mean, we just came off the heels of Halloween I'm not sure mm -hmm. about you, but um, I have I'm basically forced into having to do family costumes every year. And uh, so, you know, we're on at least the fifth one of those because my son is five and we did Peter Pan theme. So uh, my son is Peter nice. Pan. My daughter was Tinkerbell, wife, Wendy. And then I got to be Captain Hook. I live in Phoenix. Uh, it is warm here still. And polyester <laughs> and warmth don't go well together. It was, oh, you're expecting something different on like the final weekend of October. But uh, yeah, it was 88 degrees, Oof, I think. Oh, wow. like, yeah. That's brutal with these, with these costumes. And I, I feel like there is no attention paid to these costumes that you buy where they're like, comfort is not a consideration even a little comfort and quality. They aren't there. They're like, how do we, how do we make a captain hook costume for $3? That's the only, that's the only requirement. Exactly. Well, so we did, our kid's school has this thing called trunk or treat, which they do now, which is kind of mm -hmm. like people decorate the trunks of their cars. And then we all go to the parking lot and it gives the kids a way to, to kind of go, especially the really young kids, a way to kind of do trick or treating in a, in a safe environment during still kind of COVID times. And so we went super overboard and got, my wife's dad's pickup truck, which has a super long bed. And we got bays of hail and corn stalks and a bunch of chickens and spider webs and a chicken coop. And we made a haunted chicken coop that had bins in it where you'd get three different types of eggs. We had like an Easter egg with some Play-Doh and a little spider in it. And then there was a, a kinder egg, the American version of a kinder egg, which is not nearly as good as the European version of a kinder egg. And then this rubber bouncy ball egg that looked like a real egg. And so the kids would come by and they'd, and they'd grab that. So we dressed up as scarecrows. So that was, that was the, my main dress up experience, just with overalls and kind of a straw hat kind of a thing. So it was, it was a fairly simple costume. And then I went out with my son trick-or-treating and my wife took the other two kids and went to Sausalito so that our older son, who's nine, could go with his school friends. And we went around a neighborhood in San Francisco and it was amazing and so I did not, I did not dress up too much. I just wore the hat. That's okay. It's not about, it's not about us anyway. Right. That's right. He had fun. He had a lot of fun. I love Halloween though. I think I love it because it's such a creative, a creative, like what other holiday is really built around creativity? Halloween's kind of the only one. Like every, all the other ones are very, it's like, this is the tradition. This is what you do. I mean, yeah, you can decorate like crazy for Christmas and that can be very cool, but Halloween really amps it up. And is about the creativity of the costumes and the decorations and people really compete about it. It's just such a fun, it's just fun. It's like the, the, the holiday that is the most just about fun and the experience. I love that. If you're very into creativity, I'm curious then, do you have other 
creative hobbies outside of your nine to five, so to say? I have always been into to building stuff with my hands because it makes a really nice counterpoint to coding, which is all virtual. It's really nice to get in there. So I've done all I've done all kinds of things. I tore down this old Jeep, 1978 CJ5, old model of a Jeep. Tore it all down with my friend Rob, who's also now on the core team of Redwood. We tore that down years ago when I lived down in Southern California and started rebuilt the engine and started putting the whole thing back together. Moved up to San Francisco before we finished it. But I love that kind of thing. Like just learning, like you really learn how an engine works if you take one apart and put it back together, it turns out. Yeah. And, I, and I love that. So now I'm getting more into woodworking, which I've always been a little bit into and kind of dabbled in, but never really got in fully. But now I have some space to, to have a proper wood shop. So I'm putting that together and I'm building a desk out of three inch thick walnut, which turns out to be fairly challenging to to work. Like it's so heavy. It's going to be six feet long, 36 inches deep and 30 inches tall. And it's done in a kind of a waterfall style. So it's a flat top, the, the legs that come down on either side. And there'll be some kind of chunks of them scrolled out. Uh, but it's, so it's fairly simple and it'll have these huge dovetails where the top meets the sides. They'll be like these massive three inch dovetails. We haven't done that yet, but it's been really, it's been really fun to do that. So that's, I like to to think about that. But I love, I love making stuff in the real world. I think that just manual labor in general gives like kind of a bit of a break and Zen from what we do in software that has us like solve problems in that way. It's just kind of like that shift. I find very relaxing. It's funny. Robbie uh, picked up a older four wheel drive vehicle recently as well. So nice. What do you got? Uh, I got a 1965 scout 800. Uh, Cool. Yeah, I uh, am not taking it apart myself for fear of doing it all wrong. <laughs> you actually get to to take it out, though. Like, I've never actually driven this Jeep that I bought <laughs> okay. 20 years ago. Mm. I've only ever taken it apart because it wasn't running when I bought it. Oh, so gotcha. I think you're probably doing it right. <laughs> yeah, I had a Mustang back in the day and like I can bolt things on, but I can't like take an engine apart and figure out <laughs> what's not working. <laughs> that's why i started with a 73 super beetle as the first one i was going to learn how to work on cars because you can buy a whole new engine for like 800 yeah. dollars. So no, that's break the whole thing put another one in that's the great thing about these old cars is you really can take them apart there's you know the, the, the amount of electronics in this jeep is there's almost nothing it's a distributor yeah. it's a carburetor there is a little electronic little component but it's just this you know some electronics buried in wax and like that's the whole that's it. It's the whole thing. Everything else is mechanical. And it's just right. such a pleasure to, to be able to look at those things and know how they work and think like, oh, I could fix this in the field. Like I could diagnose and fix this in the field if I had a couple of tools. Yeah. Yeah. I'm definitely a fan of less technology. So how do you feel about, how do you feel about the metaverse? Chuck. Chuck's wanting to get an Oculus and, and live in there, I think. But uh <laughs> I don't think I want to live in there. I do want to, uh, so they have the software for like virtual working or whatever together. I'm just curious. I don't even have a Facebook account, but I guess I'll have to get one to use an Oculus. I don't know. Um, but, uh, and then I do want to fight uh, Darth Vader. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to lie. That's like a side effect that feels like a win to me also. Outside of those things. Yeah, I don't want to. Uh, this is just like an, another iteration of Second Life in a way with more features. I don't know. You don't want to live your entire life in a VR headset? Mm-mm, no, no. <laughs> the, I lived a year and a half in, in my bedroom as an office. So 
<laughs> That's pretty close. <laughs> yeah. I've just been contained for so long. I'm not sure that I could uh, dive deeper into that. Yeah. I feel conflicted about it, honestly. Like there's some amazing things about that idea of, of VR in general. But also real life is pretty cool too. Again, it's, it's about balance. Everything is always about balance. You want enough, but not too much. And you want to be able to balance your life so that you're not isolating yourself from people in the real world so that you can spend time in a, in a fabricated world. But that, some of that's really nice because you, you can have experiences in there that you might not be able to have in the real world. But it yeah. could be dangerous if it becomes a, a crutch or it becomes an obsession. It needs some self-awareness. And I think what that's not unlike social media as a whole. And it's why I don't have any social media outside of LinkedIn because, A, for whatever professional reasons, I'm required to have that one. And then otherwise, I just found it to be kind of an unhealthy balance for myself. It's fine for other people or they get different things from it, but it just didn't seem very healthy for me. So, oh, okay, well, I want to be able to, I'm already in front of a computer for so many hours a day or a screen, whatever. Let me just have this one disconnect. I think that's healthy. I do have a Twitter and I look at it too much. And then I'm always angry at myself for looking at it. I'm like, why am I reading these tweets? They're just making me angry or sad or irritated or. <laughs> yeah, that was exactly it. But there is some great stuff there. I mean, it's a, it's a nice way to stay up on technology and know what the latest kind of things are and where the trends are. And I've, I do some angel investing. And so it's, it's a great way to find new startups that are around, but it has a lot of downsides as well. Yeah. As with many things in life, right? Too much Lagavulin is not good for you. <laughs> Some Lagavulin is good for you. Exactly. Well, right. Again, it's balance. It's, it's all things in moderation, including moderation. <laughs> Don't over-moderate right. yourself. You got you know, you to splurge every once in a while. Yeah, I get that. All right. Well, we are over an hour here, so uh, I guess we'll wrap it up at this point. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks, Tom, for coming on. Uh, if you liked it, please subscribe. Uh, feel free to comment on things. We do have Twitter as well. You can chat with us there. And uh, catch you guys next time. Thanks for listening to Whiskey Web and Whatnot. This podcast is brought to you by ShipShape and produced by Podcast Royale. If you like this episode, consider sharing it with a friend or two and leave us a rating, maybe a review, as long as it's good. You can subscribe to future episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more info about ShipShape and this show, check out our website at shipshape.io.